That was Stan Marsh reveling in the glory of another morning in his small community of South Park in 1999's lewd comedy musical South Park Bigger Longer Uncut. This week, we're visiting another small redneck American town with a dark, less funny underside in our review of The Devil All The Time. Plus, raving vampires and French Revolution in What Have You Been Watching? We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films. I'm Sam. And I'm Lawrence. Look at those frail and fragile boys, it really gets me down. The world is such a rotten place, and city life's a complete disgrace. That's why I moved to this redneck machine in a quiet mountain So, what have you been watching this week? Uh, so, I rewatched Blade from 1998. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love Blade and Blade 2, but that's for another episode. Uh, so, Blade uh, is from 1998, um, and forget what you think you know, vampires exist, and they love to rave. Yes, uh, that's that's not all I'm going to say. Um, you could do. I mean, it is like the most famous scene. From it. <laughs> it is the most famous. No, scene. but it's, it's one of the best openings in sort of like I guess you'd say sort of superhero films. Yeah, I would. If you would put well, Blade in that subgenre. <laughs> It's it's amazing that 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 opening that opening has really stuck with people, but that shows exactly some of the strengths of Blade, of which that I think there are many. Um, but it's that it's that very unique vision. I just don't think people had ever really seen the idea of a vampire quite like that. Although vampires have always been played with, and especially like young vampires have always been played with. In a, and vampires have been adapted for the time, maybe even sometimes adapted for the youth. And you've got versions of young vampires and stuff in various movies. This was definitely a very like '90s take on the vampire, and that's what stuck with people. It was the vision of this the world that they built. Um, so anyway, the story is that in a world where vampires exist, secretly controlling much of our society and feeding on people from the shadows, a vampire bites a pregnant woman who dies while giving birth. The baby is not born a vampire, but not quite human either. Being able to walk in the sun with superior strength and speed, he has all the vampire's strengths, but none of their weaknesses. He grows up to despise his patronage, turning his abilities against them and hunting them. However, one ambitious young vampire named Deacon Frost has plans to take vampires out of the shadows and threaten all of humankind. We should be ruling the humans. These people are our food. They've got their claws into everything. Politics, finance, real estate. There's a war going on out there. He makes the weapons. I use them. Now, one will lead them to conquer mankind. Tonight, the age of man comes to an end. We're going to be gods. And one will try to stop him dead. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. Blade is a superhero film, but a very violent R-rated superhero film. Uh, but, but still a superhero film. Made before Iron Man, made before Spider-Man. 
And it is a film that particularly in those contexts has aged extremely well. But in a lot of other ways has also aged extremely well. Um, The way the film is shot is always with this murky, dusky half-light. So you always feel a bit like you're in this underworld or this like secret place. But the editing's really the incredible part here. They use it to create these really ambitious moments. Be it the charged face-off in the park between Blade and Frost or... Karen, a civilian that Blade picks up as part of the adventure and is also like a bit of an audience surrogate learning about the vampires as you do. Um, There's a sequence where she's being followed by vampire familiars, um, which is also edited really well, or the montage of Blade grimly preparing for the final battle. All the editing and stuff is really slick, but it has this stoicism and melancholy to it. So there's a real... It has, like, all these, like, kind of visual flares, but it always is kind of quite rich, but leaves you feeling like uh, like there's a kind of underlying, like, grimness or uh, something else going on. There's loads of great sequences like this in the film, like, most famously, the club scene at the beginning, uh, and that's the other thing that, this, that, that Blade really, really does really well, is that it's really subtle world-building. Like, the ruling vampires are businessmen, they're mobsters running this secret world. But Frost, the villain in the film, and the new breed of vamps are all club kids, with which were like a 90s thing, which were, you know, rich, hedonistic, sexually ambiguous, beautiful, you know, designer clothes, designer drugs, in the most exclusive places. And that's what Frost and his new breed of vampires are. So the equivalent, like a good updated version, would be like if they did hipster vampires now right but like doing that in the 90s was really cool you get a sense as well that there's a lot of stuff kind of unsaid in blade places we don't need to go like for the story to keep going but it suggests things and it just makes the whole experience so much richer like frost and one of the ruling vampires have a kind of flirtation at one point like they used to be an item like blade and and has allies apart from whistler that is a bond with and then like what is the deal with like blade with the flowers, he Blade like keeps in his meditation center, and then he destroys them just before the the final battle. Or there's this like there's like this ninja kid that's like hanging around with Deacon Frost and stuff. Like there's all this like li- these little notes that just make like you get you see on like multiple watchings, which is really good. The more I watch it, Blade gets better and better, and it really stands up today as as like an action film and a sci-fi film, but especially in the context of like superhero films, it really stands up. But it's funny because it's the more I watch it, the more I just can't defend the ending. I like absolutely can't. Literally the last 10 minutes. It's terrible. It's, it's just ridiculous. I mean, I've got the same uh, the same issue. It's sort of, it builds and builds and you think that you, you're going to get this sort of like really classy, sophisticated sort of end fight. And actually it just looks absolutely ridiculous. It's like Deacon Frost becoming the Michelin Man. <laughs> He's like a kind of he becomes this like really silly like poorly thought out Saturday morning cartoon villain at the end like a like a kind of monster from uh, Thundercats or something. But but it's like especially painful because just before it is actually even though the club scene is the most famous bit, I think actually just before the ending, actually the film peaks. I think arguably it's the best bit of the film. There's basically this ritual to raise La Magra, which is the blood god. Uh, which is what like Deacon Frost turns into and it's this like really like thumping nightmarish sequence with this like great crescendo and this like constant heavy 
gothic heartbeat of a soundtrack it's really atmospheric it's really slick all those like editing moments and like camera tricks that i'm talking about that they use them like more and more during this sequence it has like some like silly bit with like vampire souls but apart from that like it's 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 a really great like moody like 15 minutes building up to this it also has this this bit where kind of blade has to make this like sacrifice and then sort of breaks all his rules because he he ends up feeding on Karen so that he can get his strength so he can kind of save the day and so she asks him to do it but this is the one thing he doesn't he wants to reject because that's what he hates about vampires but then he sort of but it will give him strength so but as he drinks more and more from her it's clear that it's just like a violation it's something not too dissimilar from a sexual assault there's a real grimness to him doing this and then this this great kind of like release um there's also kind of like without like spoiling too much of it or anything there's also like other things that he he does in order to like like to sort of break some of the things that kind of made him him but then it's this final fight right it's not it's not just the bit where he fights deacon frost as la magra it's also the bit where blade kills all the vampires as well and it's just so silly. It's kind of it's kind of fun and gory in some bits, but it also keeps on breaking all the rules. Like they've they've established, like like suddenly vampires can be killed from like broken necks and wooden stuff to the to the heart instead of silver or garlic. And occasionally Blade just punches or kicks them and they just explode into dust. And it's like why 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 are you breaking all of this now? Why could you not be bothered to choreograph something that fits with the rest of the of the film? And it's but it's but it's also just like the whole fight sequence is just just really really silly. Uh, like there's loads of goofy '80s action movie moments with Blade spouting lines like one-liners and doing like jokey things and and things and it's just terrible. And then after it all it's all over, there's this horrible coda in Russia. Which doesn't fit with the with the movie at all. So there's this like extra bit just after the final sequence, which is supposed to like finish off the film that happens in Russia, and it just doesn't fit at all, and it really ruins it. And I and I actually just can't. You've always hated this ending sequence, and I can't really justify it anymore. The rest, Blade is brilliant, and there's so much great about it. And then this last ten minutes, it just gets worse and worse the more I watch it. Like the 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 whole seg the hot that whole attendance completely loses it becomes really really silly and wrecks it. Sounds like with the finale they bit off more naked chew. Oh, <laughs> but also actually I quickly want to say that actually the the coder in Blade Two is really good though, isn't it? The oh, co- the, yeah, it is. Is there is would you say the the, the coder? I mean, yeah, we probably shouldn't talk about it. Obviously, we don't. Want oh, to it's brilliant! Yeah, no, that bit like yeah. but bits of the, the funny thing is, I think so. They sort of so yeah. Maybe Blade, Blade, Blade Two, the like the ending is better. Obviously, Gil, Guillermo del Toro is behind it, so he can obviously he knows how to finish a film properly. Yeah, Blade Two is sort of weird. Blade Two is something different, but I'll have to talk about that another time. Blade Two, in some ways, does a lot of things like kind of better than Blade, but then at the same time, it doesn't have that same like the editing and the camera work. And the kind of trying to give something a certain mood and a certain feel. Like, Blade 2 is like, kind of turns everything up to 11 a bit. But then that does mean that the ending works. You always have this, you always had this thing about, um, 
in the ending of Blade, there's this, like, right at the end of the big boss fight, he says, completely out of context, some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. Which is... He says that just before killing Frost. And then he's like, he, like, kicks something into his head which makes him explode which turns him into the Michelin man right but what does it mean but what it, I know yeah I mean it is hilarious people re- remember that line because it's a really but it's more goofy... ce- it's more celebrated than anything these days I mean yeah. I, I've always hated it I, I remember the first time I saw it I was like well yeah I, I don't know as you, as you say like all the way through we've got this kind of like cool reticent yeah very edgy like protagonist in Blade and then he says something just, yeah, really goofy and bizarre. It's a right really in. old 80s kind of action movie line, which doesn't really fit. Which, I mean, basically it translates. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. Is, I'm I'm really bad, and so people are always trying to fight me, but they shouldn't, because I'm, I'm the baddest of the bad. But what does that have... That doesn't... That's just... That sounds to me like Wesley Snipes kind of improv that because he was just like, I am Blade now and I'm the best. But it just doesn't fit with the rest of the film. So, Sam, what have you been watching this week? So it wasn't this week, but um, last week I went to see Les Miserables. Um, oh, don't ruin the illusion of the segment. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, no. I mean, well, it's because it's been out um, in cinema for a while now. It was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film in 2019. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to break the illusion, but th- I think this is one of these films that's been around for a while, but it's kind <laughs> yeah. of only just got to cinemas because of the um, the coronavirus. So, yeah, it's not based on the book by Victor Hugo or the musical, so you won't have Russell Crowe singing in it. John Valjean! Yeah. Um, so, yeah, prob- that, already off to a good start. No Russell Crowe singing. I'm out if there's no Russell Crowe. Yeah. Um, I think you might have been the only one who likes it then. <laughs> but, you know, the film's about a new cop, uh, Stefan Ruiz, who joins the Street Comes unit that operates in Montfermeil, which is a troubled district and area of Paris. Um, it's also where parts of the book are set. So, sort of, there's the, there's the link, really. Well, one of many links uh, link the book and, um, and this sort of interpretation, really. Mm-hmm. Over the course of the film, we learn how the sort of the street crimes unit works within the district, how they work with the local mayor, how they even intimidate some of the residents and even the religious and ethnic tension that are within the community. Um, the main narrative of the film is that Issa, who's about 12, steals a lion cub from a circus, which angers the traveller community. So they then want retribution. So they go to the mayor and say, this is your problem. One of your boys from the estate has taken this from us. So we're going to start a turf war unless we get the line back. And so then the street crimes unit then get involved. And it's up to up to them to find Issa and the cup before everything explodes, which it sort of does anyway. Control de police. Fait quoi là? On attend le bus. Vous attendez le bus là? Ça sent le shit ça. Hey, c'est bon, c'est Je vous filme, vous avez pas le droit de faire ça. Arrête de filmer. Non. T'es contente là? So yeah, it's pretty hard hitting and uh, fairly gritty. I mean, I've sort of been a bit lazily explaining this as a mix between Training Day and Lahaine. Okay. And it's kind of no surprise that um, Lahaine is sort of has been re-released. So I know a few people who've gone to see this, and yeah, I mean, even though uh, Les Misérables was was made like and, and released this year, it does feel like there are a lot of like links and motifs 
which you can compare with um, the Hain. But um, you know, it's it's his own film, really, and um, it does feel really prescient with the um, scrutiny over the Black Lives Matter movement and police brutality in a number of countries. The film does focus on that, really. I mean, this is essentially like free cops who go around the neighbourhood and and you know they're disliked and. They intimidate people. They use sort of extreme force as as part of as part of their methods, really. Um, so it is quite disturbing in that front. And the film ends with a quote from the book, and I actually think that's another like interpretation of it in a way. Part of the like, part of the philosophy of the book um, they use within this film. Yeah, it's pretty, as I say, pretty gritty um, and fairly you know realistic and tough film, but um, really rewarding though. I mean, the editing, the cinematography, from a technical point of view is really really strong it just feels like one of these like a really honest and true reflection of a paris neighborhood that um is one of these areas that's probably been forgotten a little bit it just feels like a day in a life of yeah one of these kind of like high poverty high crime neighborhoods it, you know it's funny because lahane was a, a day in the life uh, a group of kids from a from an estate in Paris. Mm-hmm. How do these two films really compare? Do you think they're, they're, they're trying to say different things? Do you feel that, that one is very clearly from one time and one is from, from now? Did you? I don't know. I don't think really. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen Lahaine, So I think it would be difficult for me to uh, compare and contrast them in like explicit detail. But yeah, I think Lahaine is yeah essentially about like free working class kids who are, you know are trying to live their lives and yeah like police brutality and police violence are, are very much part of that film and it's the same with Les Misérables. I mean they they look at the good the police do but also the the bad the police do and actually like I think what the film I think summarizes in a way is that all these little moments where the police kind of take advantage of the community that they're supposed to be serving in the end that builds up and builds up and then it just leads to confrontation and um yeah the relationship between police and their community is set back by decades really and that's because of the build-up of um fractious moments sounds quite timely as well yeah as, as i said yeah it feels like a part of the part of the moment with the black lives matter protest that's been happening all across the world really and definitely a film that is really important and it feels not only a part of that movement but um i think it must speak to yeah a lot of people who have experienced and seen and seen the same things that these these characters do really i mean what i think is really interesting at the film starts with when france won the world cup in 2018 and there was sort of this idea that it brought the country together over the socioeconomic divide and, mm-hmm. and other... Cons- I would have known you'd have brought football into this somehow. <laughs> no, but it is, it's actually really important and really integral to the story and the themes that you see Issa and other kids from the estate go and watch the match and celebrate celebrate that, that World Cup win. But I was sort of thinking about that and the, the sort of the filmmaker's intention in using it. And I sort of guess it feels ironic in a way. There's this sort of national euphoria but it sort of paints over the sort of systematic problems that are within the society really and you know when you see France win the World Cup that you see it as sort of like a cultural standpoint in a way but actually there are still so many problems below the surface and I think that's what the filmmaker is is trying to show in um in a really sort of bold and an important way and um yeah the director's called Lajlai and he made a short film 
that was um, very much like this. And actually, I think with Lahaine being re-released as well, then then yeah, they they would make a good yeah a good partnership. So this week we watched the new Netflix release, The Devil All the Time. Uh, and Sam's going to tell you the plot. Well, so much happens in this film, so this is a really <laughs> a very small portion, but uh, here we go. After witnessing unspeakable horrors in World War II, Willard Russell returns to Ohio after serving as a Marine in the Pacific. He marries and has a child, but his content life is short-lived as his wife develops cancer. Willard's religious fanaticism, along with his PTSD from the war, starts to affect his family. His decisions within that period have huge consequences that will disturb not only his close family, but the communities within Southern Ohio and West Virginia for the next 20 years. And lucky you, we've got two haikus this time, because I've got one that matches the tone of the film more, and one that's maybe a bit more upbeat. I mean, the film was about four hours long, so I think it sort of deserves two haikus. I think so. Maybe we could do, like, we'll have a... I'll do you the, 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 the more serious one first. 50s, small town south, generations in cycles, no god, life is cruel. And now for the wacky one. 50s, small town south, oh lordy, people in scrapes, here we go again. Yeah, I think I prefer the first one just because... Why do you always like the sad ones? I just think it's a good, um, yeah, it's just a very good short description of what people have got in store for this film really um that is the idea of the uh, the haiku plot yeah yeah it's you basically told the story within four lines mm. it's free lines oh free lines haikus are always free lines that's the point of haikus oh. it felt longer than it is a bit like the film <laughs> and here's a clip how and why people from two points on a map without even a straight line between them can be connected is at the heart of our story and knock them stiff you ever think about how we ended up orphans living in the same house? I know what my daddy did. Some people would say it's just dumb luck. You take pictures? I do. I see a smile pretty enough to photograph, that is. Others would tell you it was God's plan. When people look back on it, they had no other choice. What an overstuffed film. That's what this felt like. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of about two hours, 20 minutes of pure American gothic dread, really. But it's not so much the length as it is, like, I think that the it felt like even with the, the length that it was, there was so much going on in it. Too little butter spread over too much bread, mm. as uh, Bilbo Baggins would say. Yeah. I just guess it's just the like the overall doom of the setting and the characters that probably makes it feel a bit longer than it actually is, really. I mean, I guess it's quite an ambitious film. This is one of the things that I did like about it. It's yeah. trying to tell multiple narratives over a 20-year uh, period. And um, there are lots of notes to American culture and history. But yeah, as you say, it's stuffed with yeah a lot of yeah a lot of events and a lot of themes. I sort of doff my cap to it in a way that it tries to do all these things, but whether that works as a film, I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't really think it 
did. There is, I, I agree with you, there is a lot of ambition to it that I really liked, um, but also a lot of the themes I really liked. Really, there's about four threads that really were following. Those threads sometimes split up into multiple threads <laughs> themselves as well as we follow the different people that live in and around this community which is called knock'em stiff yeah each group each each sort of group and each person has within them a kind of violence and or a hypocrisy or a kind of a, a real vice within them ultimately the paths of you use the word doom um but i would actually use kind of cruel and cruelty i think it's a very cruel film and i, and I think that's the thing that I pull out of it, and tackling that idea, that the, the theme of the cruelty and the injustice of life, I mean, it's it's a hard one to handle, and I kind of admire it for, for trying to, to do that, but it's just that there is so much of that going on, and there are so many threads that you never get quite attached to any one story, so the impact is not as strong. You're not as affected as the cruelty as you as you should be. And it's also always the same tone. It's always the same bleakness. And it's always really the same idea over and over again. And that does just dilute the whole experience. There's there's a real craft to doing something like this. Telling a lot of different strands and different stories. Building up an ensemble cast like this. And I think it misses the mark. I don't think it's effective. Yeah, it's um, it's a really heavy film, and as you say, like I don't think there's a lot of um diversity in tone. I mean, obviously, like um, when our I think a strength of a director is to keep a consistency in tone through certain films. I mean, I guess maybe it's like not a great comparison, but if you look at Steven Spielberg, I think he's a director that can play with different tones over the course of like a two and a half hour film, and you know that's because he makes sort of big, broad action adventures. So. I guess that's his job to do. Well, I guess well the, sometimes he does. Yeah, um, I guess the subject matter um, within this means that the director um, Antonio Campos he can't he can't play with tone because essentially it, this is about the post-war period within America where there was lots of poverty, there was lots of arbitrary violence. When you're making a two and a half hour film that involves that sort of subject matter, yeah, it is it is quite difficult to play around with with different ideas and I guess different um, different genres. Yeah, it is, but I think there are some people that do have done it successfully. They've portrayed the South and they've portrayed that period. Maybe sometimes they they're concentrating also on like a racial element and the kind of that kind of thing, which is noticeably absent from this. Um, from the devil all the time, there isn't really much of a comment on the racial situation and any kind of racial injustice, which is. Which is interesting, but because that's that is something that dominates films about this period and and this part of the world. So it's an interesting decision. I don't think that that it ne- you necessarily have to tell that story in 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 every every single thing you you talk about. But it was. <laughs> I don't know if some people will watch this and feel like that's something that they maybe shouldn't have skipped over a little bit. It does mean that you can actually just focus on a very human kind of cruelty. Uh, rather than something that's very specific to a to the kind of socio political 
world of the time of, of the kind of racism and and stuff that kind of thing that was going on. No, I think you're right to bring it up. I mean, it is definitely absent throughout the film. I mean, I can't even remember a um, African American character in there to be honest. Um, so yeah, I guess that is that is a bit of an issue. But yeah, I guess it's more concerned with like religious fanaticism in a way. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the characters in this film who are, are of religious authority. Um, or who have become, you know, completely obsessed with religion, whether that's um, Bill Skarsgård as Willard Russell, or whether that's uh, Robert Panson as Preston Teagarden, and, and even Harry Melling as Roy Lafferty. These are all characters who, yeah, they become completely obsessed with religion, and they use it to manipulate people, and they commit unspeakable crimes because of it. I think the role of religion is quite interesting in the film, uh, or actually, it's really—it's more the role of God Himself yeah. or herself, uh, and 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 that is very interesting. That's an element of the of the film that that I, I found quite interesting. We're, we're frequently seeing uh, religion and faith being perverted or becoming destructive. You could definitely take this as a bit of an anti-religious film, but there's also this narration going on throughout it that's kind of expositioning what's what's going on um and this could just be the narrator but you could also read that as being god uh himself uh observing and watching his children and 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 the 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 stuff they get up to and the ways that they sin it's it's something about the way that the narrator is clearly there to tell you what's going on inside their minds and is there right at the kind of the end of some of their lives to kind of narrate exactly what was happening to them at the time of their death there was something omnipotent about that kind of I mean narrators are always omnipotent Mm. uh, to a certain extent but there was something about this that really made me think that this could be uh, God and um, what did you think of that motif though because I know a lot of critics do get fed up with that motif because it's an easy way for a director to um, tell and not show. Yeah, I I don't think I particularly mind. I'm not really sure what I thought about it because I thought that the that the, the narration was actually some of the more beautiful moments of the script, and actually it added it did add to that idea of God perhaps watching and. Uh, and that element that God have, could have been a character in the film, which is interesting. And yet at the same time, I think some of the moments could have been more impactful if it didn't have God um, or the narrator. If it didn't have that narration, I think some of those moments could have been more impactful. Yeah. Some of the deaths, some of the moments could have... You could have amplified the injustice, the cruelty, the real sadness of some of these moments... Uh, without that, so I, I'm not really sure where what I think about it. If it was God as well, you could also see it as God watching and willfully doing nothing, which also kind of adds to that kind of anti-religious theme. I mean, I think it's a little bit lazy at times, and I, I do think it gets in the way. So there's a bit of the, at the beginning of this film where the narrator, which may or may not be God, introduces two characters uh, who are. Riley Keough as Sandy Henderson yeah. and uh, Jason Clark as Carl Henderson and he basically tells us straight away that they're going to be serial killers and they're going to end up murdering a lot of people now why did we need to hear that within, why did we need to hear that they're basically, within that scene it's those, when those first two characters meet and 
it's just completely by chance and almost by random luck that they end up meeting and it, it's kind of I guess to force that idea that people's lives are changed forever just on this one random moment in life but why did we need to hear that before we we saw it well it's it's just that it's that other that thing that's going on in the film about destiny how people are stuck in a cycle uh they're they're strapped to these doomed lives and these doomed places and there's there's kind of nothing that they can do about that and that there, there's something really and, and that's the tragedy of it I'm not sure what I think about that bit either because on the one hand like I just said I think it it had it has a bit of an impact you know that moment where you say to where you say to the audience well this is the meeting and these two people are going to be serial killers and that's a that's a bit of a shock and yet at the same time I agree it, it is a bit expositiony and also what it really does is it hammers home the the tone of the film which is a bleakness uh, even in a moment where two people meet it can actually just be no these people are strapped onto an evil path it's a really good example of a kind of conflicting moment on the one hand it maybe hammers home a lot of the themes and the ideas and the tone but on the other hand it kind of takes a lot away from the way that you tell the story leaving you with an unsatisfied feeling i think it's an admittance that there's so much going on within this film that they need a narrator to explain a lot of it and that just gets him that gets the film from a to b a lot quicker uh which i think is a shame in a way yeah but then if if you're i guess if you're um adapting a novel which is very long and very complex and you want to get the best bits of the novel within to a screenplay then maybe using a narrator is is the easiest way to do it sometimes sometimes it can really add to a film i mean i don't want to go off on too much of a tangent but um, I actually, things like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, this very beautiful, lyrical narration that goes on throughout it, adds so much to the feeling of the film, because those char- so many of those characters can't tell you exactly how they feel. It would be unnatural to tell them how they feel. It's a good way of, of getting across some of the real sadness of it, or... Actually, the same narrator, the same actor, does a very different kind of narration for a film I actually surprisingly quite liked called Age of Adeline, um, which is about Blake Lively never growing old throughout the centuries. But in that way, the narration is used to get across some of the more science fiction-y concepts, and then the film is free to explore the the romance of the plot and what some of the more like beautiful elements of it. Um, so it gives it a bit of freedom to go off and explore those other things. So sometimes narration can really, really work. It just it just depends how you use it. Um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford was from 2007 and directed by Andrew Dominique. It's got um, Brad Pitt, Casey Affleck, Sam Rockwell in it. So um, yeah, I think it's an absolute masterpiece. And um, yeah, it might be something that could go quite well with um, the devil all the time. Actually, yeah, it could. What did you what did you think of the performances in this film? So that's what- the absolute highlight for me. I think it's I think apart from some of these more interesting things that you can pick apart, I think the strongest part re- really are the uh the actors. You have Tom Holland who is really showing his range, showing he can have a stoicism and a darkness to him, which is which is very far away from his like most famous role. 
Uh, Robert Pattinson just continues to prove he's, he's one of the best actors of his generation with a performance that is very charismatic and electric, but also steeped in a kind of re- uh, re- a real ugliness and a sliminess. But he he does really attract your attention, especially when he's kind of preaching and sermonising. And then Jason Clark, I think, uh, always fits perfectly into whatever film he's in. Uh, he's he's such an excellent um, underrated actor. I think he just he he in this he's very vicious and sadistic. You could you could seriously imagine him being from this town. He's like I say, he always fits so well into whatever film he's in. Yeah, I mean, I disagree with all of that. I don't. Oh, think really? the, uh, <laughs> I, I I think yeah, I, I just think all these performances are like either fine or substandard. I mean, they've got. I think this is one of the best casts accumulated for 2020 in terms of a film i mean yeah there's kind of like you've got sort of jason clark who's kind of like one of the most underrated actors generation and then you've got someone like tom holland coming through who's you know obviously more famous for being in big superhero films but yeah this is one of his first chances to um as you say show his range but i just think all you get is this sort of southern accents and one note stuttering dialogue heavy scenes and I just don't think you do see a like a good performance in there, really. Um, I think a lot has been made about Robert Pattinson's southern accent. I think that's something that I've seen. I mean, that obviously something that's that's not something that you picked up on. No, and it's not something that particularly distracted me. But I just don't think Robert Pattinson quite suited the role. I mean, yeah, there is like a malevolence about him, but I think most actors would be able to pull that off with the with the character that um, that he's playing. I, I think the only actor that stood out for me was Bill Skarsgård because um, he obviously plays a soldier who comes back from World War Two and he's you know seen the most horrific things there. And I think you do have to show that while on the surface you just have to carry on like that generation did that you know the people that fought in World War II, that that just you know almost have that stiff upper lip, which is kind of obviously more associated with. Um, with sort of British culture, but yeah. um, even in America, they they had to go there and they had to rebuild a new society with all these people who had gone on, who had who had murdered and you know seen seen the worst acts that humanity can commit. And he he has that weight to him, Bill Skarsgård, all the way through the film. I just think you can see the turmoil within him, um, and then it all it all explodes without um, without getting into spoilers. But I thought he was the only actor for me, and, and I think. The rest, the rest of them sort of fade into the background. And, and I, yeah, I mean, I was probably more disappointed with Jason Clark, to be honest. I mean, really? I know, yeah, I mean, I think he 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 can never deliver a bad performance. But again, it's like it's a heavy southern accent, and I just don't think he really is able to fully flex the muscles that he has. Maybe there is uh, a one noteness to the script and to the story, but I think they do the best with what they had. I was really pleased. Uh, I, I I think everyone in it that I that I saw was was doing really well. Um, I I really disagree with that. I I think they showed. Don't you, don't you think Tom Holland in particular? I think showed a kind of a restraint and a subtlety and a kind of he could he could you 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 saw something in here that you you saw that rage you saw that violence. Like yes, he was he was playing a character whose innocence was corrupted, and I think he he does. Uh, not just because he's Spider-Man, but <laughs> but I think that he he, do, he can do an innocent character quite well. But I think in this he showed an anger, a rage. 
Yeah, I mean, I I thought like he showed a fury really well. Like, yeah. I think his I think there's an idea throughout this film that violence begets violence. Um, and I think when it got to that stage when he really unleashed himself, I thought that was good. But I guess just guess when I was watching the scenes that he was in, I just wasn't convinced. Slightly, as you say, one note. Just not particularly yeah. convincing for me. Um, I guess maybe convincing isn't a very good word, but I just guess I just uh, just wasn't really blown away as you were by by performances. I was. I, I mean, I was quite pleased. I thought it was the best part of it, but I do agree that maybe this is also part of the problem with the whole film. Really, I mean, you've got so many good things on paper, but then you you stick so much of it into a blender. And then you come out with something that's actually pretty unsatisfying. A, a feeling of kind of almost like a blandness. The other thing I really wanted to pick up on was I think the film is a bit of a deconstruction of, of Make America Great Again. In, I think, pointing to the vileness of such a, a, a romanticised place and a kind of lionised period. as a, Often, I think, people want to go back to a time and a period in a place like this but it was determined to show how nasty and hypocritical and cruel a community like that was and that it just seemed to be going round in a really nasty cycle and i think there was something interesting about wanting to tell a story about that being pulled apart and i think also there was this there was also this presence as as the as the film moved into the 60s there was this complete lack of the kind of the counterculture movement right up until the end when there's this, a bit of a signifier of it, of it as a bit of an escape. And I think that perhaps was saying that like the 60s are coming and change is coming and really that is perhaps what is going to save places like this. That actually, although people sometimes will fantasise about the past and everything, actually the way that society progresses might just pull these places out of the the evil cycles that they get into. Yeah, I agree. And I think poverty is a big part of that. You know, it is. Um, I mentioned yeah. it once before, but poverty is sort of laced throughout the story. And essentially, these are people who have just absolutely no help and they're trying to bring up families and they're trying to have normal lives. Yeah, amongst this really depressed backdrop. And it feels like the characters are defenseless and especially the women. They're basically yeah. subject to the men within that sort of patriarchal society. So it's really horrible to watch at times the yeah, the way these like these people are overpowered by their setting. Um and yeah, there is uh, yeah, you look on the po- the post war period, not only in America but in this country, is celebrated in a way and actually um there were so many problems that um had to be fixed by the government and actually, yeah, through a different way of thinking and through of that cultural age that came within the 60s you know there was an alternative way of thinking about um how people lived within within certain countries so i guess my my, my final question is that why is it you know we can pick so much out of this film there are some interesting ideas there's an ambition here why is it that the final product just doesn't really work very well i mean i actually ended up when I was looking back on the film, I realised that there were strands that I'd forgotten about. It, it seems almost like a tragedy that a film that has so many good ingredients ends up leaving you with a feeling of, to be honest, like I said before, a kind of a blandness. I think the the problem really is, is that it is just too much. They've tried to cram too much in to a film. 
and there are some choices made that keep the the film always at the same level the same tone that even if there are interesting elements to it the final feeling coming out of the film for me was one of dissatisfaction uh, you, you know a really strange experience for for something that we've been able to talk about like a lot of really interesting themes the actual final product of the film is is, is just not really that effective yeah i i think i would praise its ambition but I know what you mean. I think it it tries to do too much and I think it will leave most people just feeling like a little bit overwhelmed. And as an audience, I don't think you want to be finishing a film thinking like that. I mean, I just really liked the almost investigation into sort of post-war America. And there's this school of thought that when soldiers go to war, it's what they bring back which can be just as damaging as their actions within a war-torn country, and I think Devil All the Time is definitely a film that posits this theory. So, obviously, when Willard comes back, his time back in that community is sort of spent looking for answers and why or how someone can do that to another human being, and I think all the way through the film we are presented with these scenes where you're like, oh, well, how can, how can people be that evil? And I think there is, like, a quest for an answer to that question, which maybe is never really answered. I mean, and I think the vision is quite nihilistic at the end. Like, it's really well staged ending. Yeah, there is this idea that America is sort of being transported into the next era of the sort of hippie and counter-country movement. But, yeah, there's this idea as well that the Vietnam War's coming. And so you're going to get people like... So is the country just stuck in the same cycle, the same way that, that, that that community is? Yeah, it's like as people like Willard... There are going to be lots of people, like Willard went into World War II, you know, you're going to get lots of people of that generation go to Vietnam, they're going to bring back the horrible things that happened in that country, and it's going to affect their mental health, it's going to affect their communities, um, and they're not really going to get much help, and it's cyclical, and I guess there's this idea of like, well, the more that America, for example, is going to go fight in foreign wars, the more evil they're going to sort of like bring back and permeate through the rest of their own country maybe it's challenge challenging people to break that cycle maybe it's saying that that's the point is that as long as people keep going to wars and and doing terrible things to other people then this kind these kind of communities are going to keep being this nasty and then that's the question of like whether the film really is nihilistic or not i mean i felt the film was pretty is is a pretty like i said a it's a it's a cruel film in, in a lot of places even though there is a lot of beauty in some of the people's like final moments, like they look up at the sky and they all see a kind of similar image of the sky and the trees, and there's this this moment where they realise, oh, this is it, and then they're taking in this beauty. Their moment of clarity. Their moment of a moment of clarity, yes. But also, there's a lot of moments of basically people dying, and then basically within that death, that means that a truth is lost, something that was never expressed, that should have been expressed, is lost in their death. And that is incredibly cruel to have to keep watching that. And that makes it feel like a nihilistic film. But is the is that ending, that idea of breaking... Is there an idea about breaking the cycle there? So maybe there is a god there? Maybe there is a morality there, or an optimism? I don't know. It certainly wasn't immediately apparent when I, when I watched the film, but... Maybe it's an, another one of these films that's going to mature a little bit better. 
maybe we, we could go back and see it. Uh, I just don't really want to go back and see it very soon. There's a lot of no good sons of bitches out there. Excuse me, preacher. You got time for a sinner. If you like Devil All the Time, then you should check out Place Beyond the Pines. Made in 2012, the film follows Ryan Gosling who plays Luke, a motorcycle enthusiast who earns barely any money from performing stunts at a carnival. After learning he fathered a child with Romina, played by Eva Mendes, Luke decides to rob banks in a way to look after his family. After the cops start to catch up with him, he embarks on one heist too many and is hunted down by a new rookie in the force, Avery, played by Bradley Cooper. It would be a shame to ruin such an epic film, so I won't go into any more of the details, but Avery and Luke's meeting ends up shaping the rest of their lives, and more importantly, the lives of their sons. My son and I should be around him. I wasn't around my dad looked the way I turned out. How are you going to take care of us? I can't think of another line of work that I'd rather be in. You're so smart, you can do anything you want. Just don't understand why you're doing this. I'm a cop, Chad. got a kid? You want to provide for that kid? You got to do that using your skill set. And your skill set? Like the devil all the time, Place Beyond the Pines concentrates on how people are often at the mercy of mysterious forces beyond their control. I like the aspiration of the devil all the time's multi-narrative structure, and this is executed better in Place Beyond the Pines. There are less characters to juggle, and the intentions and emotions of these characters are on better display in Pines. In this film, we also focus on a period of roughly 20 years and how different characters age and how they're moulded by their past. It's more of an elegiac piece, and Pines also does the heavy lifting of the story without a narrator, so there is more subtlety within the storytelling. But while I have a preference for Pines, I do feel there is a lot you can compare and match with The Devil all the time, as much of both films focus on the sins of the fathers upon their sons and daughters as well. It's also going to leave you feeling quite teary and in need of a stiff drink or long walk to ease the melancholia. Yeah, I love Place Beyond the Pines. It's one of the best movies made in the past decade i think it's a really good link with the devil all the time because they both have that sense of a pain carried over generations the sins of the father but also that like you say it's like the cyclical nature of of the of the people's destinies um if you haven't seen it it's it's really 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 worth your time yeah i guess it does feel like a similar tone in both films if you know what i mean it is I, I think the place of Beyond the Pines is not as bleak as the devil all the time. Maybe not quite as hopeless. I think there's... In anything, more... it ends on a hopeful note. Yeah, well, I think it, it it's hard to know whether it's hopeful or whether it's the same cycles going around and around. You, you'll understand that, that might, it, if you see the film, that might be a bit of a pun. I think there's more beauty as well in the place Beyond the Pines. Yeah, I know what you mean. I guess maybe... It's still, like, the setting is, is kind of similar. Obviously, it's modern day. Yeah. But I think it is kind of one of these, like, high poverty, high crime areas that some of the film is set in. Although, actually, there is... At one point, there's kind of, like, a juxtaposition between characters, one who's quite, sort of, working class and on, sort of, the edges of poverty and one who's, sort of, more middle class and affluent. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess maybe there's kind of, like, yeah. There, there, is, there are similarities in both films, really, and I guess, yeah, that's why I sort of clicked with it. And if you didn't like this... Um, I'd suggest watching God's Pocket from 2014. No, not because this is God in the title and the other one has the devil. God's Pocket is a different flavour of one of Devil All the Time's themes. Mickey, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, is having a bad day. He may be married to the local beauty, played by Christina Hendricks, but her adult son, 
played by Caleb Landry-Jones, is a racist, bad-tempered shit. When he dies suspiciously, Mickey tries his best to give the kid a good funeral for the sake of his mother, but it proves harder than suspected. As well as this, local celebrity, reporter Richard Shelburne, played by Richard Jenkins, is sticking his nose into the story. The working men of God's pocket are simple men. They work, marry, and have children. And until recently, they die like everyone else. 22-year-old construction worker was killed yesterday when he slipped and fell to his death. Leon Hubbard didn't slip on nothing. Something happened to Leon over at that job. Something nobody's told us yet. I'll see what I can find out. It's funny that being such an American film, it reminded me of a British farce more than anything. The characters bounce through a comedy of errors and bad, honest decisions. There's also an ensemble element to it, like the devil all the time. It covers mainly the two narratives of Mickey and Richard, but we're given a wide range of characters and problems in the pocket, as it's lovingly called. People that owe people, people that kill people, people that drink, people that cheat, people that judge. All of these people build God's pocket and give a substantial vision of a community as all the devil, but it's still satirising it and picking it apart. And the pocket is as hypocritical and unjust as Knock'em Stiff is in The Devil All the Time. Mickey is constantly reminded that he's an outsider, having not grown up in the pocket. He's criticised and insulted by these people for something unimportant. Richard is adored for his weekly column romanticising the pocket, but secretly he regards the place and its people with nothing but disdain and contempt. But that's God's pocket all over. It's a hypocritical place, full of gossip and sin, just like Knock'em Stiff. You're a hero one minute and a villain the next, and all for the same arbitrary reasons. It's not particularly vicious about it, but it is a satire on small communities that are proud of being small communities. It's about the innate horribleness of of that idea, the skewed patriotism and unstable moral authority that radiates from these places. If you want a lighter, funnier, more well-rounded critique of Make America Great Again, then this is a real gem. Yeah, I haven't seen um, God's Pocket. Sounds like it's got a really good cast in. I really like um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Richard Jenkins. Mm. And it's directed by John Slatterly, who um, is from Mad Men. Oh, wow. But I can't remember the name of the character he plays in Mad Men, but you've seen it and I haven't. Well, I... Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't didn't know he directed the film, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I guess he's sort of got like a really good cast together and made something yeah it's a film i really really liked when i saw it because i liked the way it was kind of satirizing like i said the small communities i kind of thought about it when i was thinking about the devil all the time if you didn't like it because i think the devil all the time is about the the kind of evil that can exist in a small community and and kind of where that evil comes from and I think God's Pocket isn't really about evil, exactly, but it is about bad people. It doesn't really go into exactly why the place is the way it is. It just has kind of this, but by the end, it's sort of like revealing itself to kind of be about what these places are really made of. And I think the devil all the time is doing that as well, but God's Pocket wants to do it, like I say, in, in a slightly more farcical way. Yeah, I guess there's a lot more levity in it, and I guess that's the main difference would you say, between the two films? It is, yeah, that is the main difference. That I think even though God's Pocket is still violent uh, in places, it's definitely funnier. It's got a it's got a sense of humour about it that, that the devil all the time doesn't. So if you were craving that, then I'd go to this. Now, Wesley, I know what I said about Blade, but really, that movie's like over 20 years old. You really don't need to... Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. Now, Wesley, come on, calm down, Wesley. No, 
don't you think about it. Don't even... Thank you so much for listening to Cellcast. You can find and subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as Cellcast. And come follow us on Twitter at Cell Magazine and like us on Facebook.com forward slash Cell Magazine.